Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 102. Today on the show, Dan and I are answering deer hunting questions that you, the listeners, have emailed in. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today I think is going to be a fun and pretty different episode. It's going to be laid back. It's just me and Dan today. And we're going to answer your questions that you've emailed in. And I want to give you a little context as to how I came about having this idea and doing this. Um, There's this podcast I listened to. It's uh, it's not a hunting-related podcast at all. It's called Reply All, and it's just a show about the Internet and interesting kind of fun stories that are somehow related to the Internet. And on one of these episodes last year, they started talking about, the two hosts of this show were talking about how stressful it is to try to handle email and how they just get overloaded with emails, and there's so many they have, and then slowly over time, you know, they get so far behind on emails, then they look at an email from, like, five months ago or seven months ago, and it's an important thing. They should answer it, but they're now petrified to answer because of how embarrassed they are that it's been five (laughs) or six or seven months. And so I don't know if you can relate to this, Dan, but so they they decided to have, they decided that we need to get like just blanket forgiveness for emails. And they decided to start a holiday called Email Forgiveness Day, where on a certain day of the year, you can email anyone from as far back. You can reply to an email from as long ago as possible, and you can just respond to it completely guilt-free and then just link to this email or this URL that they created that explains Email Forgiveness Day. So on that day, respond to one email from a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> and I love this idea because with Wired to Hunt, I have just gotten so overwhelmed with emails, and I'm so, so far behind, and I feel horrible about it. There's so many people that have sent in emails asking questions or different things, and I just cannot. I mean, it's just getting to the point now where it's just not logistically even possible to be able to answer all these emails, right. you know, while still doing all the stuff we have to do. So, my idea today 
was to take this email forgiveness concept, which the email forgiveness day was April 30th, so this past weekend or Friday or something. This is going to be our email forgiveness week of the podcast, and what we're going to do is we are going to answer a bunch of email questions that have been sent in over the past months, um, and you know, answer as many of those as we can today, and hopefully then, hopefully, my hope is that the rest of you can forgive me for not responding to those of you that I have missed. I apologize for that trying hard to stay up on as much of it as I possibly can. But through this podcast, hopefully we can have some semblance of, uh, of, of being helpful still. So that's the game plan, Dandy. Think, uh, what do you think about this email forgiveness podcast? Me personally, I'm okay with it. Cause I'm in the same boat. You are, I get a lot. And, uh, the, uh, I, I always feel like I'm slapping somebody in the face if I respond, that's awesome, thanks for listening. <laughs> and I do that a lot. And yeah. it's not that I don't, you know, I'm, I I really am intrigued and interested in what they have to say. It's just that I, I, have, I don't have a lot of time in my day to do everything that I need to do, especially, you know, for me, I have a full-time job as well. So uh, getting, getting to those emails, if you get a half-assed response from me, I'm sorry, but at least you got a response. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I, I think, and I hope most people can understand, you know, that type of situation. Where, right? I mean, whether you are doing something like what we're doing, or if you just, you know, work a office job, you probably can relate to the email overload too. Um, so, you know, in this type of situation, right? It's it's either we continue creating the content that, you know, people are are hoping to see from us, or we do nothing but respond to emails. And the one bummer thing about emails is it's only a one-to-one thing. You know, one person has a question, one person can learn from it. Hopefully in a format like this, you know, we can answer some of these questions but help a lot more people. Um, so that's that's kind of what I wanted to do today. So it's email forgiveness day. We've got, I don't know, a whole bunch of different questions about all sorts of different deer hunting related topics. Uh, but I guess before we dive into those, Dan, Anything new on your end otherwise? Um, I pressure washed part of my house. <laughs> well, that's exciting. No, it's not. It freaking sucks, man. <laughs> Brownie least, points. Brownie yeah, points. I'm, I'm working that angle, man. I'm working that angle for the fall. And, uh, you know, that way I, I have some bargaining power. And typically it's one of those things where it's like uh, you're supposed to do that anyway. You know, I can't really use uh, it for a bargaining chip. Yeah, but oh well, it's all it is what it is. It's all it is what it is. It. Right. Spin it. So, so right now, what is the prognosis for your rut vacation? Is it going to be like last year, where you had like a week and then like some scatter days, or are you going to get your full two weeks again? I don't know, man. I'm not going to bring it up quite yet. I got, <laughs> I got to find the right time. Um. I got to find the right time and, you know, getting in the right mood and all that stuff. And I think by me, I don't know if I'm going to be going on a Western uh, trip this year or not now. So if I don't go on, if I do go on the Western trip, then it's probably going to look poorly for a two, two week rut vacation. But if I do go, uh, or if I don't go on the rut or on the Western trip, then I, I think it's a little bit more, you know, I still might. I might have some bargaining power there, but, uh, you know, both, you know, last year was tough, um, because of the kids and whatnot, but now the, uh, or, uh, now that, uh, the kids, um, both eat by themselves, you know, they're not bo- both potty trained, but you know, 
it's a little easier every year it goes on. And, uh, I think, uh, I don't know, I'll probably get two days to hunt. Two days. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we're going to have a rough go at it when it comes to talking hunting this fall then. <laughs> I mean, I got my, I got my close pieces, you know, yeah. so, so that's good. But, uh, you know, the only thing that's really affected by it is morning hunts. Um, and it just, it's just a matter or afternoon hunts if, if I have to pick up the kids so I can get a lot of morning hunts in, but, uh, you know, that's a long ways from now. And I still got a lot of other projects I need to get done, both deer related and non deer related. So we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. You, uh, get out and turkey hunt this weekend or no, no, it rained the entire weekend here. Plus it was my son, uh, his very first birthday party. Ah, so yes. we, had a, we had a family gathering and I was kind of focused on that. How was, how was Max party? Matt. Oh man. Strippers, kegs. <laughs> <laughs> Starting them off right. Right. No, it was cool. All my, uh, all my, uh, family showed up. Everyone that I wanted there at least. And no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> my family showed up it was awesome great food great times uh our family's loud and likes to talk and and give each other everybody shit oh, so so weird i wouldn't have expected yeah. that yeah <laughs> Smart ass. but no it was great uh he's one he's a ton of fun and yeah that's cool he seems like a character. I, I'm looking forward to meeting him one of these days. Hopefully I can get out there soon and see the little guy. That's cool, yeah. though. I had a good weekend, too. I had my family here to visit as well. Oh, yeah. Your dad came, didn't he? Dad came down for some turkey hunting, and then actually my mom came with him because we had a, a cousin from out of state that was coming in for a college visit uh, yesterday. And so he was going to – well, he flew in Sunday night. So she wanted to be here so that she could see him because we rarely get to see him. He's from Washington State. So the whole family, mom and dad, were down, and uh, turkey hunting was awful. Yeah. It was rainy, kind of like what you had there, and nothing was talking, like zero gobbles. It was just silence. Yeah. So we had very, very, very little luck from a turkey hunting standpoint, but uh, we got to do some shooting and some fishing and ate a lot of good food. So that was good, good family time there. And now in four days or three days i'm leaving for ohio which will be hopefully a little better there so yeah i got trail camera pics and uh of turkeys strutting and i got a i my buddy owns a house right so he lets me hunt so to return the favor i pressure washed his foundation on the north side uh gets a lot of like mildew and mold on it so i i pressure washed the north side of his of this wall that's what is his foundation on the outside and uh in between me pulling the trigger on the pressure washer i could hear turkeys gobble in the distance <laughs> that's that's gotta be painful right it was hard for me to stay motivated at that at that point yeah, understandably very understandable <laughs> yeah I, I get that i have the issue sometimes i'm sitting here in the home office and every time i walk well either from my office, I can see across the road to a neighbor's property, and there's always tur turkeys walking across there. So always about like 9 o'clock when I'm trying to just get into some writing or something, I'm seeing these dang turkeys walking across, and that gets me all distracted. Or when I walk out behind the house, I can see more property behind me where there's usually turkeys working in the late afternoon. So it seems like no matter what time of day, there's something that's going to distract me and make me wish I was out hunting. But uh, so it goes, right? There's a lot of distractions. There is a lot of distractions. Lots. Of, and Google Maps is probably my biggest distraction. 
Yeah, that'll do it to you. Maps will definitely do it. Maybe that. Maybe these types of distractions are why we don't answer our emails on time. That's right. Bingo. And it's come full circle. It's come full circle. We apologize. We're just horribly distracted. <laughs> Awful procrastinators and all around lousy people. So, should we... Let's, should, get, let's just get right into should it. Should we try to answer some questions? Let's do it. All right, but before we get to that, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, who have just recently released their new products for 2016, including the new Fanatic Vest and Fanatic Light bibs. And our Sitka story today comes from John Mulligan, who had a day of hunting so incredible that it's unlikely he'll ever be able to repeat it again. And it began with a quick trip across the border from his home of Kentucky or southern Ohio for a morning hunt. And right at daybreak, here comes a nice buck, and John gets an arrow in him. It was an easy recovery for him, so him and his buddy, who was filming for him, dropped the buck off at the processor and then got back to Kentucky by about noon. We eat lunch, and, and he says, well, what are you going to do the rest of the day? You know, are you and the family going to do stuff? And I thought, oh, well, you know what? The way the wind is today, this is actually the wind we've been waiting for in Kentucky. I said, let's, uh, let's see if we can get on that buck there. And there was a, there was a, a big deer that... Um, I don't know exact scores because I never got my hands on him, but we figure he was somewhere in the 175 to to low 180 range. We get in our set that was already pre-hung, and I get a tap on my shoulder and a squeeze, and that's kind of our little signal, unspoken language, that if, it, if you get a tap, that means, go, okay, look up at me. If you get a squeeze, that means pay attention, but just don't move just yet. So he taps me and then squeezes my shoulder, and finally, I'm able to kind of do on that rotate where you're, you know, you, you turn your head six inches over the course of 30 seconds. We've all been there. I rotate my head over. There's my hit list buck at six yards, basically at the base of the tree, right underneath a down tree. The only possible angle that I can't shoot from. And he walked and walked and walked away. And, of course, I give my buddy Mike, I give him a lot of, a little, you know, a lot of grief about it. I'm like, really? A 175 sneaks in like a ninja like that to six yards before, you know, you're able to see it. And <laughs> and that's just you know how it is. That's just the way it is sometimes. So you kill a nice buck in Ohio first thing in the morning, and then just a handful of hours later, you've got a 170-plus six yards. What kind of good luck charm did you have with you on that day? Uh, I'm telling you, I was ready to go to the gas stations and start buying lottery tickets <laughs> because I've never, I mean, I'm like the self-proclaimed, Hey, I'm the Irish Catholic guy that has the worst luck of anybody <laughs> in the world. I mean, the luck of the Irish did not follow me. Uh, I've never had a day. Sure. I've had great days where I've had great experience and killed nice deer, but I've never had a day where I killed a good buck in one state in the morning. And then that very same day, you know, 30 miles away, a different state, and then I got a 175 at the base of my tree. Um, just a, a cool day. A cool day indeed. And on this hunt, John was wearing the Sitka Equinox pants and jacket and the Fanatic hoodie. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, back to the show. All right, Dan, so I'm thinking... I've got a bunch of questions here listed out, and I didn't include the entire email, but I tried to include enough of the email to make the question relevant. So I'll, I'll ask these questions, and then uh, maybe I'll send them to you if you've got a good answer right off the bat or something that's top of mind, and then we can bounce back and forth between us and, and see where it goes. I, I don't have a, too much of an agenda with this, so if we want to talk for 30 minutes on one of these because it's that interesting, we can do that, or if we end up going rapid fire, that's fine. We're just going to... 
We're just going to see where this takes us. I'm down for that. Cool. So That's how I perform my best, Mark. Good. <laughs> no restrictions. <laughs> no restrictions. That's <laughs> – well, I'm glad this is going to be a high-performance day for you, Dan. <laughs> All right. We're not going to throw last names out. This is just going to be first names. But if you hear a question that sounds like it might be yours and the first name matches up, consider your email answered. <laughs> <laughs> This is because you probably can't pronounce people's last names. Yeah, that's, that's true, too. So first question comes from Luke. And here's what Luke asked. He said, about five years ago, some unknowns trashed my property. They broke stands, stole cameras, and they even took one of my climbers about 30 foot up a tree and shimmied down, leaving the climber up in the tree. He then went on the offensive and plastered no trespassing signs, began building a fence around the property borders, but two weeks ago on one of... Luke's small food plots of clover, he had yet another camera stolen and a young deer skull was left in this field. So his question is, any suggestions on what I can do or should do to prevent this kind of issue in the future? So dealing with trespassing and people messing with stuff and stealing with things in your property, how would you recommend someone deal with that, Dan? Well, you got you got two ways to look at this, right? So one is... Let's say it's your property. Um, I would get very serious about it, and I would call the DNR. I would call the sheriff. I would, you know, tell them what happened. Uh, let everybody know on the properties that border that property. Hey, I had this happen. Have you had anything like this happen? Have you seen anything like that? Um, you know, anything strange or funny or out of place happen around here? Um, and, you know, just get the word out. I had a trail camera stolen one year and I called the sheriff. I called the DNR. I called, I, I contacted every landowner almost within a mile of where my trail camera was at and asked them, knocked on doors, asked them if they've seen anything um, suspicious. I went to the Mount Pleasant, well, it, yeah, my local newspaper and asked if I could put an ad in the paper about stolen trail cameras, you know, information wanted and, and posted stuff on f local Facebook pages and it worked. I walked back into the timber one day and my trail cameras were at the bottom of a tree wow. that, um, that they were on. They weren't back in the tree, but they were at the bottom in a pile. Um, so there's that way to look at it. Uh, and, you know, if it happens, if it happened, five years ago and then there was no issues for four years and then it happened again you got another trail camera stolen in some places that's pretty good odds um and right. you definitely you definitely run the risk anytime you leave anything out in the timber even though you may be the only person to have permission to it you run the risk of stuff getting stolen or tampered with so that's kind of a risk you're willing to take and you have to ask yourself how much risk are you willing to take and then uh yeah, that those are those are two things that I would really consider. Yeah, I like a lot of what you said there. Man, you are hardcore when it comes to getting those trail oh, cameras dude. back. That was serious. I mean, a trail a trail camera costs three hundred bucks, man. That's that's like two three days of work for me. Yeah, well, I guess you you put the time in and got it back. So that's awesome. I love now, it. Now, not all of them have been returned, yeah. but that particular instance they were. So yeah, I, I think that's a great example though of what to do, and I think. That, that ties in perfectly with one of my big pieces of advice would just be that you have to set a precedent. You have to show that 
trespassing and these types of things are not going to be tolerated and that you will enforce it or make sure that the law enforcement does. So I think the the biggest mistake people will make is to tolerate this kind of thing and not do anything about it just because you're lazy or just because you think, well, something's probably not going to come of it. Even if I do go talk to the DNR or the police officer, or even if I do put up signs, that's probably still going to happen. So I'm just going to I'm just going to deal with it. I think that's the biggest mistake because I think as soon as people realize that there's no ramifications for doing things like that, then they're just going to keep doing it. And word will spread locally that, oh, so-and-so doesn't, you know, they don't, they have no idea if you're trespassing. You can cross there. No one will ever care. Right. So I think, you know, now that you're having some issues again, definitely I would go on the offensive again. Make sure that no trespassing signs are up everywhere. Make sure that you follow up with authorities if you have other issues with cameras being stolen or things like that happening. And then to your point, Dan, I love the idea of just locally talking to a lot of people, just like making it known that, you know, you're trying to figure out what happened and that you're not going to deal with this. I think that's probably the one of the best things you can do because, like, what happened in your case, word got around, this guy probably got a little worried and decided he better, you know, take care of this. So, yep. and at the, on the same time, you have to be on the same page. If you're, if it's not your property, you have to be on the same page as the landowner. The landowner has to want to catch trespassers and um, th- thieves as much as you do. So if you reported a, uh, a stolen tree stand or a trail camera to the landowner and they're kind of like a, oh, well, it's not bothering me, then you cannot leave that stuff out on their property or you need to go find a different hunting property. Yeah, and and to that point, I think my other piece of advice would be that once you've done all these things to try to prevent it and to try to enforce it, then you have to take, you know, security measures in, you know, by locking up your cameras, locking up your tree stands. That, that sucks that you have to do that. But if you're finding that you're having these issues, you need to make it as difficult as possible for someone to, you know, to get away with that kind of thing. So, like, for example, in my, my southern Ohio property last, well, I don't know, whenever I went there for shed hunting in February, I found that two of my cameras had the SD cards stolen out of them. And to that point, we never had any issues with our tree stands with trail cameras, no trespassing issues that we could tell of, so we felt pretty comfortable with the situation, and we hadn't been locking things up. Um, but now that we've had this, now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to be locking all my trail cameras, and I'm also going to be putting cameras up throughout the property that aren't even aimed at deer level, but up in the trees aimed down to catch trespassers if this type of thing happens again. Um, so if anyone's listening that happens to be my issue, <laughs> know that we are not going to uh, let this happen idly go, and let this happen idly by. We are going to try to do something about it. So I'm also going to be putting up no trespassing signs. And again, just make sure that you know the locals know that that's not okay. So, right. And it sucks that you got to kind of be a Nazi sometimes, but I mean, a lot of... Hunters like me and you, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we put a lot of time and energy and effort into doing what we do. And when someone rains on our parade, we're going to get pissed. Yeah. And it's just, there's unfortunately this level of respect that seems lacking in a lot of cases when it comes to something like this. Like, why do you got to do that? Why would someone want to go and steal somebody else's camera and, you know, bash on their, take their tree stands or mess up things or whatever it is. I, I don't understand how a fellow hunter would want to do that. Like, I don't know. I can't explain it. It's disappointing. It's discouraging, but, um, it's but not how we were raised. It's not how most of us were raised. That's for sure. So I guess Luke, that's what, that's what we would do. 
hopefully this is something that doesn't happen to you again in the future, but uh, maybe try some of these things and it, it might help discourage whoever this trouble person might be from, uh, from doing something again in the future. So booby traps, booby traps, like digging a hole and putting branches over top of it. And then they fall in that kind of thing. That or, you know, hey, here's a here's a shed antler on a bear trap and they reach down to grab it and then their hand gets chopped off. Oh, my gosh. Is that what happened to your finger? Yes, I was trying to steal shed antlers. <laughs> <laughs> the story comes out finally. I know. I know. Did you ever see that video that someone someone uh, booby trapped a situation like that? I can't. I gosh, I watched it so long. ago. I can't even remember exactly what happened. Either the guy was trespassing or like he was messing with somebody else's trial camera and he tripped a wire or something that blasted paint all over the yes it was a trespasser who was uh rifle hunting on this dude's property and uh, the guy comes in and it's a landmine full of basically (laughs) a landmine full of uh paint like paintballs and it just blasted the guy and it's hilarious to watch (laughs) i got what was coming to him exactly oh man okay ready for question number two here we go all right this question comes from ben Ben says, I'm somewhat new to the idea of deer herd management. So far, my efforts have been based solely around the goal of attracting deer to my property, as it was drastically mismanaged in the past. At any rate, it's early season here in Illinois, so he sent this to me early season last year. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a few months behind. (laughs) So hopefully this This is still... This guy probably gave up on hunting just because (laughs) you didn't respond to him. Gosh, I hope that's not the case, Ben. (laughs) So he says... It was day two of the season, and during his hunt, he had a decent doe walk out at 20 yards. As he drew back, two fawns emerged behind her. They looked to be old enough to survive, but I hesitated to take the shot and ultimately decided to pass. The doe eventually wandered off with the fawns in tow. So, did I make the correct decision, or did I just miss an opportunity to put meat in my freezer with minimal effect on my herd? What do you think, Dan? Should you have should he have taken this doe with two fawns? Or you know, I believe not. you've you've talked about this before, so I'm going to pass this question back to you. Yeah, I think we, I think I'm not sure when I talked about it, but I know we have talked about it to some degree in the past. But I think it's worth having the discussion again to some right. to some degree. So I have like fluctuated on this back and forth, and it kind of depends on like the moment for me, to be honest. Um, for a long time, I, I thought I, I would never want to shoot a doe, an adult doe that had fawns with her. Cause that just like didn't feel right. And I, those, you know, what would happen to those fawns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then the more stuff I read and the more research I did, I you know, came to realize that by the time that hunting season rolls around, those fawns are, you know, they can, they can survive and they'll be viable at that time in their life. They can, they can handle it without the mom there with them. Um, and many cases will be somewhat adopted by, you know, another family group of, of does in the area in some cases. So, you know, from a biological standpoint and from a herd management standpoint, from everything I've seen and heard, that's okay to do. You are not dooming three deer by killing one adult doe. Um, so with that being the case, I have taken adult does with young um, in the past, although I've never taken, you know, some, you know, it depends on when a fawn is born and there's some that look just super, super, super young, like sometimes still spots. And then there's some that just look a little bit healthier and older. And for whatever reason, just like the emotional impact of that sometimes on me, I've just have said, nah, I don't want to do it. It just doesn't feel right. And that's just me. That's just me. Um, sometimes it feels right. Sometimes I just want to let them go. 
I don't know. I don't know how to explain that except other than maybe being a pushover, I guess. And I guess, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, I respect and care for and enjoy watching these animals. And um, I want these animals to, you know, be treated and hunted in a respectful and ethical way. So, you know, I think it's one of those in-the-moment decisions. And for me, it, it has it has varied depending on the day and the situation and all that. Uh, so I guess for me, Ben, I would say you made the right decision because that's what felt right to you in that moment. And, yeah, that could have been an opportunity to put meat in the freezer, but I hope that farther down the line you had another opportunity. And in most cases, if you're if you're hunting for a doe, there will be other opportunities. If you're playing your cards right, um, if you hunt smart and are in an area where there's a decent population of deer, you should have more opportunities to, to shoot a doe. So I don't think there's anything wrong with waiting until that feels right to you because that's a tough decision. Killing an animal is something I've said it a thousand times before, but it's a serious decision. And I don't think you should ever ever feel pressured to make that decision um, if it doesn't feel right. So that's my take, Dan. What do you think? You know, I'm pretty much I'm pretty much on the same boat as you. Um, I kind of go by a feel. Um, I would love to kill an adult doe, you know, a mature doe, but um, I'll be honest, and this may sound bad, but fawn meat tastes just as good. You know, so if if you're <laughs> right. going to if your goal is to fill the freezer, you may not get as much meat. But fawn meat is a little tender, in my opinion, a little more tender. It tastes really good. And um, there is a benefit in a way, a guy once told me, um, to killing a younger doe as opposed to the mature doe. The mature doe will go into heat first. And if you can pattern a a mature doe, then you also can pattern potentially the first buck to come in through, you know, late October. When they start their, you know, when they start uh, trying to uh, meet up with the the first mature doe in the area, that's uh, something to think about as well. So I know a guy who he doesn't like to, he doesn't like to kill the mature does. He likes to kill the younger deer. Um, granted, you know, in order to get mature, you got to get young. But as far as does are concerned, he'll kill a, a yearling or or a one or two year old doe, and uh, that's where he gets most of his meat from. So just something else to think about. Yeah, interesting. I'll I'll, I'll throw another devil's advocate perspective on that. Um, one other way to think about it is that the fewer so a lot of people say if you if you got the does, you'll have the bucks during the rut, and that's true to a degree. But also, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing in that if you have a huge number of does that are of breeding age and viability, if there's a huge number of does, there's not a lot of competition for bucks in that it's very easy for a buck during the rut to find a doe that's ready to breed. And because of that, the rut, the visible rutting activity that you'll see during the hunting season could be less. It could be less intense. It could be less visible daylight activity because those bucks don't need to be moving as much, traveling as far, and as active to find a doe. So to have a more intense rut, you're going to be in a better situation if you've got a more controlled doe herd that's more in line versus an out-of-control, really, really high doe herd. So one of the things that I've tried to do more recently is try to do some of my doe hunting earlier in the season, and I personally have been targeting more mature, mature does, or at least of breeding age does, because then that reduces the number of potential does for a buck to to hook up with, which might lead to a slightly more intense rut. Um which you know hopefully would result in 
better opportunities from a hunting success standpoint for a buck in the future. Right. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. Not that there's a right or wrong answer there, but that's one other perspective on it. Um, and the one other thing I would say that, that I do believe is true, um, that I've read from studies and everything like that, and just makes biological sense, that if you are trying to control a doe, a, a doe herd, so if you've got a population that is overpopulated with deer, the best way to do that is to be harvesting your older does because they are the does that have the greatest chance of um, of having twins. Yep. So if you're killing older deer, that's a better chance that you're going to have a larger impact from a herd standpoint versus killing a younger deer, which more likely that first year might only have one. Um, so one thing to think about, depending on what your herd situation is, if you're really trying to control it, you might want to target older deer. If you're just trying to keep it stable or grow it, but you still want to kill a doe, maybe that is the right call to kill the younger does. So a couple things to think about on that standpoint. Next question. Next question comes from Timothy. Timothy says, I have numerous bucks in my area, but all are nocturnal, especially the bigger ones that I consider shooters. I know the rut is supposed is supposed to inspire the big guys to move, but it never seems to happen around here. Is this typical? And if so, what's the answer? Uh, in that question, do you happen to know where Timothy is from? I do not. Okay. So here's what here's my opinion on that. I take it you hunt, and this is me do, throwing out a lot of assumptions. Timothy hunts in a highly pressured area. All right. So uh, he is probably sharing property with other hunters or he's hunting on public ground. Um, if he knows that there are big bucks in his area, he needs to be ready and they're nocturnal. He needs to be ready to not hunt early season to relieve the pressure in that area. And hopefully um, the trail cameras will show um, movement closer to daylight. Now, another option is that he checks his trail cameras too much and he is spooking his own deer and, you know, going in to check his trail camera too much. Um, so those are, those are two things that I can think of right off the top of my head. The other is from, uh, from an access point, he needs to be putting his trail cameras not and, and this is only if he has good access finding stand locations closer to potentially where they're betting so if they're not coming out to you know 10 15 minutes after dark then he needs to find out where these bucks are at 10 15 minutes before they're getting caught on trail camera and go set a tree stand in that location yeah i think you're spot on i think that is exactly i think you know in this case like you said we have to make a lot of assumptions but I would say do a do an internal audit. Audit everything you are doing on that property because most likely, if you have a nocturnal buck, the most likely cause is that it is because, well, there's two potential causes. One is that you could have nocturnal bucks because you simply don't have the quality habitat for a buck to spend daylight hours there, and he is spending his daylight hours and any daylight time in the early or even or late evening uh, on that neighbor's and is only traveling some type of far distance to get to your property at night. But I would say the more likely option or situation is that pressure is causing that deer to be nocturnal, like you said, Dan. So audit yourself. Do all those things that you just mentioned, Dan. I mean, think about am I hunting too much early on and causing these deer to become nocturnal? Am I checking my cameras too much? Is my access bad? Uh, I mean, all those things. You're absolutely, absolutely right. I, I think through all those things and figure out, you know, am I the problem? And if I am, 
how do I change that? And then if, it, if you're in a situation where, no, maybe this guy isn't hunting early season, he's, he's being really careful about checking his cameras, all those types of things, but still because the pressure is so intense on his neighbor's properties that his deer are becoming more, more uh, nocturnal, then I would say, again, you have to then either, like you, I, I don't know if there's much more I can add to what you said, Dan, because you're right, you either need to push in closer to where you think they're betting because that might be your only option to capture, um, to, to get a chance at a buck when he's just getting out of his bed. Um, but that's high risk. Obviously you've got a great, you know, an opportunity to make it even worse. Um, or wait till the rut when yes, there is going to be a better chance that they'll make a mistake. So I think in that case, I would, I would probably, if it was super intense situation, lots of hunting pressure, I wouldn't hunt at all until like peak of the rut and I got good weather and I plan on, you know, try to keep the pressure as absolutely low as possible until the timing is great. And then go in there and really hope that, all those factors finally going in my favor, plus having not pressured these deer at all, will give me that little, little, you know, little bit of hope and a little bit of opportunity there. You might be able to take advantage of it. So, right, right. One thing I'd like to add is, I can just hear somebody saying this, and that's why I'm bringing it up. Well, he's not coming from my property. Okay. Well, then you have to start asking yourself different questions. Um, can you hunt that property? Uh, no, you can't. Have you asked? Then go, you know, knock on a door. Ask if you can hunt their property. Um, and another thing that I always like to do is, and Bill Winky touched on this in one of the podcasts about casting a net in regards to trail camera reconnaissance, right? So you you have, you have all these trail cameras out, and you get a target buck on one of the on one of your trail cameras. So you're taking down other trail cameras and moving it into a different area to hopefully find out where this buck is looping. And I call it a loop. You know, they come out of their bed, they make their rounds, and then they go back to bed. And that's that's not necessarily the rut, but that's pre-rut. You know, in that late October time frame when they're starting to get on their feet, they're making their scrapes, they're 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 you know making extra stops throughout the night, uh, looking for where these doe, you know, sent checking these does. So bring another trail camera into the area and try to find another point where he is exposing himself, whether it's dark or not, but two reference points will help you triangulate his position. And then you can start bringing more trail cameras in and, and hopefully try to find this buck's loop. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, that that brings us back though to the original thing that you mentioned, which is over, possibly overdoing with trail cameras. Right, though, so right. you got to find that fine balance. Like, what, right. where's the where's that middle of the road where you can get enough intel to adjust appropriately, yet not put so much pressure on these deer just by checking trail cameras that you hurt yourself in the long run. I mean, that is one of the biggest challenges as a serious deer hunter today. I think when you're trying to you know, collect information through cameras that one of the greatest challenges that so many people I talk to have is that they become addicted to it or they feel like that's such an important tool that they almost, they lose the effectiveness of it because of the fact that they're checking so often. So I've got a good friend of mine who now is trying to completely change his trail camera strategy to become super, super conservative with it because he's thinking now that he's been overdoing it in Michigan, particularly where that pressure is so intense. Um, he's thinking, you know, based on his, you know, success and things he's seen over the past five years that have been much lower than he would have hoped around here, a big part of it is probably because he's been trying to be so intense with his cameras and figuring out these deer. So now he's going to go about it the other way and almost 
take cameras out of the equation completely and instead hunt just primarily based on terrain and you know what he has been able to garner, what type of information he's been able to garner from, in, from experience, and then see if that can, by that reduced pressure, if that will increase daylight movement. So it's something that it all depends, I think, on where you hunt and the situation there and the pressure you know, put on those deer by other people around you and yourself and what you can get away with, but I think it's something you really have to be mindful of. Um, so... Be careful about how you're checking your cameras. Be careful about how often you check your cameras, um, how you're accessing them. Um, all those things I think you really have to think about. And I think, you know, I don't know if we really need to get into it, but we will because we go on on tangents. But um, I, I had a conversation with a guy recently about trail cameras and yeah, it's awesome to get big buck pictures and help locate, but sometimes trail cameras can do more harm than good. And you have to go back to the old school way of just being a hunter and going out into the woods and, and hunting and not waiting on trail cameras and, and going in and ruining, you know, potential sets by checking them. So it could be a love hate relationship. Very, very true. I definitely have, have gotten a lot more conservative with my cameras the the more I've been using them because I've been finding that very thing. It's it's so easy for it to, to consume you and to force you into poor decisions just because you want to see those pictures. So I know I, I, I almost don't make any trips ever to check a trail camera unless I am already passing through there or in a vehicle. So if I'm heading to a tree stand, I, I try now to position trail cameras in places that are easy to access when I'm already going to hunt. So I know I'm already going to make an intrusion because I'm hunting this location, so it's not going to be that big of a deal to also check a camera. So I do a lot more of that, or I'm waiting for rainy, windy days, or I'm putting cameras on field edges that I can access by ATV or truck, which in many cases has a much lower impact. So it's a big thing to think about. Ready for the next one? Let's do it. All right, this question comes from Dakota. Dakota is new to hunting, and he says, I'm planning on using scents, and I had a question or two about that. Is there any advantage to putting out a big buck scent and a doe scent in the same area, or can you ever over-scent an area? And that's question number one. Secondly, he asks, are all scents about the same, or is using one off of a website or something like that better? Most deer wouldn't be familiar with that smell. And then finally, he asks if we think that uh, Evercalm is worth time. I don't know if you've heard of Evercom, but uh, three questions there, Dan, all related to scent. What do you think? All right, pick one. Pick one. I'll answer. I'll answer one. Then you can answer the second part of it. All right. Uh, is there any advantage to putting out buck scent and doe scent in the same area, or can you over scent? Can you have too much scent out? So, I am not a huge fan of like you know, estrus urine or buck and rut urine. I, I've used it in the past, but mostly on mock scrapes. Um, I've used a drip, you know, you hang it in the tree and it drips down onto a scrape. And um, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't feel it, uh, it necessarily brings a ton more deer in the area. It might, it might make a buck curious and they check it out and, they either make, you know, make it part of their loop or they decide, you know, Hey, I'm not, I don't need to worry about this. The, the disadvantage here of putting sense out is you run the risk again. That's something we're going to be talking a lot about today is risk. You run the risk of deer being at your tree stand location while 
you are walking to it in the morning and you can't see, so you can't avoid it, or staying after dark, after you know your hunt's over. So you have to get down at some point, and you're going to run the risk of potentially spooking them, or you have that scent there and a morning hunt, and the deer are already in the area, and then you blow them out. So it can be, again, a double-edged sword. Yeah, and I think, I guess that perspective that you have there right there probably would apply to all three questions, right? In a way, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel the same way. I'm not a big guy when it comes to attractant sense or anything like that. I've always been just of the mind that it's better to try to eliminate as much odor as possible and um, and not fuss too much about trying to add in other attractants. I would rather just know where deer want to be naturally and try to position myself there in a scent-free as possible way. Um, that's been my way to go about it, and it's worked all right. I have definitely tested a lot of these scents in the past, and just it hasn't been it has not compelled me enough to want to continue doing it. Not saying it can't work. Not saying that they don't work. I'm sure there are some types of situations where they do. But I think there there might be some of it. It's a little bit of that marketing magic right. that makes us think that this little product will will change our hopes and dreams and, and give us that big giant buck. And I'm not sure that's always the case either. So it's a tool, but I don't know if it's necessarily the cure all. And it's a tool that I just personally have not put a whole lot of uh, faith in. And well, let's look at it this way. You know, you put a Chinese restaurant on a corner. If I'm not in the mood for Chinese restaurant, I'm not going to stop there. You know, it's kind of the same way. We, I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but You're making me hungry. I know. But scents are, in my opinion, kind of mood driven. So if a buck smells an estrus dough and he's not in the mood to breed, then he's not going to come into your area. All these things are trying to pull deer off of their natural path and come to you or stop to you when you should be going to their natural path and trying to intersect them without knowing you're there. Yep, I agree. I think I think nine times out of ten, that is the more likely tactic that will work. So, so that's my thought for all these when it comes to all these scents. So because of that, I really can't speak to whether using a, you know, a, a scent bought off a website versus one that was created locally or anything like that. I couldn't tell you if that's going to make a difference. I've never used Evercom, so I personally can't speak to that. Um, you know, the only scent stuff that you and me, at least that I use, is Ozonics, Nose Jammer, and Scent Eliminating Spray, which all those three things are used to just eliminate or, or mask my own scent in some way. So right. that's what I use. That's what we do. It's not necessarily the only way or the right way, but that's that's what we've done. Right. Dave. Dave is next, Dan. Dave. Dave is next. And his question, again, he is a relatively new hunter as well. This was his second season. And he says, I was out in the woods tonight and a bunch of deer came through after shooting hours. Would you suggest going back to that same stand in the morning? Man, there's so many questions that i have to ask right now that yeah, you know i wish he was here we're operating on we're gonna have to do some assumptions here as well but right. uh go for it oh man you're throwing it to me dang it <laughs> i don't have the answer that's like i saw a deer in the woods how do i kill it shoot it <laughs> <laughs> okay so 
Would I suggest going back to the same stand in the morning? Well, it's going to depend on a whole lot of different things, but let's kind of flesh this out, kind of put together a hypothetical situation, and then we can debate that more detailed hypothetical. So let's say if he's a new hunter, maybe he's just targeting does or young bucks. So let's go with that assumption. And let's say he was out in the woods hunting like a field edge or something. They didn't come through until after shooting hours. So would that be a spot to hunt again in the morning? Well, what what can you take from this? If I'm thinking about this, okay, what did I learn from that hunt? When I'm sitting there in the evening, or this person, Dave, he's sitting there in the evening, he saw deer come from somewhere after shooting hours and pass by him. So what he can gain from that is he knows what direction these deer are coming from when they're coming from a bedding area. Because if it's in the evening, they're coming from a bedding area, heading towards some type of food source. So you've got a piece of information in your in your toolkit now. You now know where some deer are bedded. Maybe these, like I said, does and young bucks. Maybe a couple does and a young buck came from this swamp, maybe. Now you realize that's potential bedding air. So would I go back to the same stand in the morning? I don't know. If you were hunted, if you were hunting on the edge of a field where those deer were feeding after daylight, I would probably say don't go back there in the morning because that is likely where the deer or some deer might be feeding in the morning before daylight as you're walking in there and there's like a great chance you might spook those deer. So the better you know, decision might be now that you learned where a bedding area is, look back at how might I be able to access that bedding area from a different direction and hunt within it. If you wanted to get there in the morning, you want to be where the deer are heading. You don't want to be where the deer are right when you're walking in. So let's say you now know that that swamp is where there seem to be some does bedded. Think about how you can get there without spooking deer in that field and set up a tree stand in that swamp for your next morning hunt, and you might be able to catch those does or that young buck coming back to it um, that next time. Maybe that's a couple days later or whatever it is, but take that information and utilize it for a future hunt, but not necessarily going back right to that same stand in the morning. That's one hypothetical situation that I just thought of, Dan. What are your thoughts on that or another hypothetical you might have in mind? Yeah, for the most part, it's it's where is the deer's destination so if it's early season more than likely and if it's if the deer that you saw were does and that came through after dark they're on their they you know pretty much they pretty much have uh, a bed to feed pattern all year long except for when the bucks are kind of chasing them around but you have to know that if your access route to your tree stand is the destination, then you should avoid that access route, try to find another one or not hunt that particular stand. That's my two cents. Yeah. Now I will add, let's, let's look at a different situation. Let's say this was a mature buck Mm -hmm. and let's say this is in the rut. And so this buck came out after shooting hours, but let's say it's close to it and you saw him come out of this place. And let's say you're not on a field. Let's say you're back in kind of a travel quarter, and you saw this buck moving through, traveling to some other place, but not necessarily, you know, this isn't the destination where you're at. You Now you know that there is a mature buck in the area, and yeah, it was after shooting hours, but there was a mature buck in the area, and maybe he was on a doe, locked on a doe. In that type of situation, I might be more apt to go back in there in the morning if I can access it again without spooking deer because, you know, at that time of year, if you find a hot doe with a buck locked on her, there's a great chance that they're going to be in that general area for for a bit of time. So if you're in a travel corridor or close to a bedding area and you think you can get in there without spooking deer, then that is a situation where I would say get back in there and stick to it 
until you know you've given that time that area some decent time because there's a great chance at that type of situation they might circle back or they might be in that general area for the next 24 hours or however long and then you might have an opportunity to call one in or or see them coming back through the same spot so i think it all depends on the circumstances um but i think to your point dan and to what i mentioned earlier you got to think about your access you got to think about where's the destination and when are they coming through either one of these different spots? And how does that all factor into how do you get in and out of a stand? And then, you know, what is the reason you're hunting that stand at that time of day? So if it's a field edge hunt for a morning, a morning sit, lots of times the deer are going to be, at least in, in many cases, are going to be back in the cover before daylight anyways. So that's not going to be a great spot to be anyway. So a lot of things to think about. And, of course, as a relatively new hunter, that's something that you you haven't necessarily had the experience to, to think of all these different hypotheticals, but uh, hopefully this kind of lays out a few of those things to think about. What's the next question, Dan? <laughs> I don't have the piece of paper. <laughs> Can you think of a random question? Do you have any questions? Have you emailed me any questions that I haven't answered? Uh, yeah, why hasn't money been deposited in my account? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that comes down to performance on the job, Dan. I knew it. I knew it. Poor performance. Oh man, I'm not gonna make any jokes about that. I'm just gonna <laughs> just gonna move on. <laughs> we got another question from Nick. Nick says that his first question is, "What's our opinion on flashlights when entering or exiting your stand in the dark? Do you use a bright flashlight, dim flashlight, different colored light, or no light at all?" That's our first question from Nick. Flashlights. What do you do, Dan? So I like to use the red ones um, and the ones that I guess from what my understanding deer have trouble seeing that or they're not spooked by it. Kind of like on some of these trail cameras that uh, we have today where it's a red flash and the deer necessarily aren't aren't affected by it, I guess. However, um, there are some – access routes that I take that I need, I need some light to get into. So whenever possible, I point my flashlight or my headlamp straight down at my feet. And what this does is the timber, it casts less shadows. So if you have your flashlight pointing straight down and try to keep it just aimed at your feet and that there's no kind of side glow to it, deer, deer will pick up on, you know, the shadows that are kind of, will they be spooked by it? I don't know. It just depends on what kind of property you're hunting. Um, but I always try to have my flashlights straight down. I mean, for some of my access routes, like I said, it's a necessity. I have to have some kind of artificial light going into to my tree stands. Yeah. Yeah. I think I echo a lot of what you said there. I, I always use a red light because like you said, deer, deer don't have, they, they can't see that wavelength of light they see it as just a dull gray. It doesn't come out red. So it is the least noticeable form of light that you could use when going in and out. Um, you know, that's why we wear red or orange when hunting with firearm season because we can see that, but deer don't see it the way we do. So red lights are definitely the best choice when you're getting in and out. Um, but to your point, it needs to be bright enough that you can actually, you know, see. So mm-hmm. I've had issues with, I've tried a number of different headlamps and they're all like just the red the red filter on it dims the light so much it makes it tough to utilize. So I've just had to try a lot of different headlamps to try to find one that's actually bright. Some are really great, some are not. I would say if you are in the market, really pay attention to that and and get the highest lumen rated 
headlamp you can get with a red light. Um, I think that's pretty important. So that's my take on it. Nick had a second question, though, for us, Dan. Okay. It's about nose jammer. Nose jammer. He says he used it last year and it worked well, but is it possible to overuse it? If you apply it to yourself in your stand every single hunting set, do you think the deer will begin to associate it with hunters or danger, especially if other hunters in your camp are using it? This is something I thought about, and I don't know if I've got – I definitely don't have an official answer on it, but I know you, you've interviewed the founder of Nose Jimmer. Is that right? Yeah, I actually – interviewed the guy who came up with the product and uh if you want to check that out you can go to the podcast and check that out but from my understanding it it's you know you're gonna have to i I can't i'm not gonna try to quote anything so just go listen to it but i use it i've seen great success with it and um as far as overusing it i you can't according to the guy you can't overuse it um, if they start to associate that with danger, I don't think they're going to, but, uh, you know, I've used it now for three years and I've definitely seen better success with deer coming from my access point. Uh, so I, all I can say is that it, I've used it and I believe it works. Yeah. I, I I can't speak to, you know, whether or not that could happen. I don't know the science of it, but I mean, I guess if you just think about the fact that, you know, here's a stimulus. The stimulus would be a scent, or in this case, yeah. it's kind of like the ability to not be able to smell. So it just, I think it maybe depends on how, what's the actual like, physiological reaction for deer. So, you know, in this case, it's just that this like overwhelming scent of like vanilla, I think, that jams their olfactory system and makes it difficult for them to smell other things. So if that deer has some type of sensation when it catches a whiff of nose jammer, so that's a stimulus. Yep. If that stimulus is consistently associated with a negative stimulus being, let's say, seeing a hunter then after or being spooked by a hunter, hypothetically, I think that could happen. You could They could yep. develop a negative association with that stimulus, yep. but I think that it is much less likely for that to happen than the reaction that you get when a deer receives the stimulus of human scent, which is something that's ingrained in them for you know, instinctually from history, knowing that is a dangerous predator for eons. And then that is a reinforced behavior over the course of its entire life. As it smells that thing from every single hunter or human that goes in there, he smells it and then sees a human or spooked by a human or its mom gets spooked by a human or whatever it is. So I think that is a, that is one of those things that is, is reinforced so much more often than could possibly happen in your case with you or maybe you and your buddy using nose jammer on a handful of hunts and you know maybe one of those hunts you spook deer and they associate it i think it's much much less likely to happen yeah in the interview the guy basically used this example if you've ever walked into a pizza store you know like a pizza hut or something like that you open the door and you get this overwhelming smell of pizza so much so that you yeah (laughs) you don't smell anything else that's what nose jammer is doing but what if you walked into a pizza hut and you got this overwhelming smell of pizza and then every time you do that someone hits you over the head that's a or shot your buddy Right. <laughs> I mean, then I'd start to be like, holy shit, here comes pizza. Yeah. Get me out of here. Yeah. I better start eating more, uh, more Mexican. <laughs> so I think it, I, I think it like hypothetically, they could develop a negative association, but I think it, and the, I don't know, but you would have to condition them. Yeah. That. 
all year round. Yeah, because it's just because that would be so much smaller of a percentage of their situations as they have in a smelling human odor and how they've been, you know, uh, conditioned to respond in that case. So interesting question, though. It's definitely an interesting hypothetical to you to what you said, too. I have not seen a negative. um, I've not seen a change in how deer react to nose jammer yet in my hunting situations, and I've used it for two seasons now so i haven't seen anything negative yet but i guess you know we'll have to continue reporting on that and see if things change or not i don't know the only thing that i would consider negative about it is some deer get curious and they want to they follow the scent to your stand that's true and then you got deer you don't want to kill around your stand and that can be a big problem i have had that when i and i'm so far, it hasn't resulted in me getting busted, but it's gotten yeah. me panicking pretty bad. I'm like, oh, please don't look up here. Please don't look up here. You know, like in a case where if I'm hunting like a mature buck, if I'm out there buck hunting and a bunch of does come through, like I want you to just please pass through. Don't get spooked. Right. I don't want anything possible to happen that will screw this up. And then they start coming right to your base, basically your yeah. tree stand, and then you start getting nervous. Right. So, so far, it hasn't, it has not nipped me in the butt yet, but uh, that's a good point. It could happen. Interesting stuff, Nick. Thanks for that question. Chris. Chris is our next question asker. And this is... (laughs) I forgot that I included this. Chris says, I believe on one of your podcasts, you (laughs) can't even finish it. I can't even finish it. He said, all right, I got to compose myself. He says, I... (laughs) I believe on one of your podcasts, you mentioned how you have a weird show. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you need to settle down. You're a oh, professional, Mark. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really going to struggle with this. He says, I believe you mentioned that you have a weird-shaped head. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, <laughs> or that your ears sit higher than the average person. Causing 75% of hats to look completely ridiculous on your head. Well, I had the exact same problem. <laughs> I wanted to know if They're any of them laughing at a listener. <laughs> so he wants to know if any of the wired to hunt hats fit my head. If so, <laughs> would they work for him? <laughs> Only if they're flat billed, right, Mark? Oh, no, the flat bill hats look ridiculous on me. Oh boy, they look ridiculous. The, the the hats that fit my weird shaped head the best are <laughs> are the flex fit wired hunt hats. Those look, I think they look good on me. My wife says they look good on me. So those are the ones that'll work for your head, buddy. I apologize that you have the same issue that I do, Chris. <laughs> and that we're laughing at your at your physical attributes, <laughs> or we're laughing with him because I can. Okay. I'm right there in the same boat. This is this is my issue too. <laughs> It's true, though. I buy a lot of hats, and the stupid things are way too high, and I look ridiculous. So there's that. Problem solved. Buy a wired to hunt hat. Wired to hunt flex fit hat. Yeah. That's the one. So now, <laughs> and that's at wiredtohunt.com slash shop. You'll find those hats. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> now, Ooh. my question, hey, you wow. still owe me a camo hat. I do? Well, you never said you were going to give me one, but. I want one. If you want one, I will send you one. Yes. I, just text me so I remember, and I'll ship it out to you, buddy. Man, you are desperately cool. deserving. Hashtag co-host benefits. There you go. <laughs> Chris 
no, that was Chris's question. Yeah. Eli. Eli has another question unrelated to head sizes or hats <laughs> or anything like that. Here we go. All right. Uh, my question is that I've been contemplating starting my own blog for a couple of years, but I haven't because I've been scared to put out my real name and trail camera photos of the deer on our family property. Reasons being the area that I live in isn't necessarily a big buck area, but our neighbors and us have been able to take some nice deer in the past few seasons. So have you, so me or you or me, Dan, have we noticed any strange activities around our hunting properties or poaching? I know it's a worst case scenario, but I do get paranoia every October about poachers. Some of our land is easily shined from the roads and in areas that can't be seen from any houses. Am I being too scared or untrusting of people? What do you think, Dan? Do you, you worry know, about that at all? I, in a way, I do. Um, I share. I've sh- shared shared. I've shared pictures in the past and have gotten messages from people with trail camera pictures of the same buck. So they know, yeah, they know where I hunt now. Um, I mean, it's no, it's not a real secret where I hunt. I'm not going to go out. Why don't you just come right out, come right out and tell us, Dan, where do you hunt? (laughs) I I hunt only with high fence outfitters. Oh, there you go. You just, just, we're going to get so many nasty emails now. (laughs) $3,500 a hunt. That's how much I spend for one week of hunting. Oh man. That's what they all assume. Yep. When I see your pictures, right? High fence all the way. That's all I do. I don't own any. I don't own any property or or hunt private ground. There's this, anyway. <laughs> there's this. There's this little app, Dan, called Clamor that allows you to take snippets of a podcast and share it on social media. And I'm just gonna snippet that one line there where Dan Johnson says, "I only hunt high fences and I spend 3,500 <laughs> hunt." I'm gonna share that everywhere. <laughs> yep, that'll do it. <sighs> but as far as a blog's concerned, hey man, if you don't. If you don't feel comfortable, if you feel that your message is positive and it's going to help others or whatever your goal of your blog blog is, use a pen name. That's fine. Writers have been doing it for years. Um, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Or I mean, or just be careful about how much you're putting yeah. out there. Um, I mean, I definitely have thought about it and had my concerns, but at the same to your point. In the long run, I think, you know, the benefit, hopefully the larger benefit of me sharing these stories and pictures and lessons learned, whatever, I think that the the greater good is more important than the potential chance of maybe somehow this negatively impacting my own hunting. Um, right. So that's been my own take on it, but I definitely am careful about it. I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to be, but it's just a reality of the world we live in now. So, you know, I don't give, I don't share details of specific places where I hunt, specific locations, particular parts of a county or anything like that. I'm not going to go that detailed. Um, uh, so that kind of thing I think is, is, is okay to keep to yourself. And I think people understand that. Um, but you're going to have to see you're on your own. It it can be totally dependent and different on different situations. And it's hard to say exactly what that could be in your case. Amen. All right, so before we get to our next question, we're going to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, the Whitetail Institute of North America. And today, John Cooner from Whitetail Institute is sharing with us some important information about using herbicides to deal with weeds in our food plots, and specifically, the importance of understanding the difference between selective and non-selective herbicides. So, if you're a food plotter or want to be someday, listen up. Sure. So, uh, some herbicides, uh, like glyphosate, which is uh, the active ingredient in Roundup brand herbicides, and there are also uh, some generics out there and other brand names 
Uh, you can tell by looking at the label. It'll, you always look at the label. It'll tell you what the active ingredient is. If you look down there and it just says glyphosate, that's a very common non-selective herbicide. Non-selective means it doesn't select. Whatever it touches, it's going to damage it or kill it. Uh, selective herbicides, let me back up. The non-selectives, a lot of them, not all of them, uh, are great for helping you prepare a seed bed if you've got a really, really bad fallow site with a lot of weeds, weeds in it. There are also other ones that can help depending on what you have, but the wait times are longer, such as 2,4-D, uh, triclopyr, uh, those, those can be useful in some cases, but by and large, glyphosate's the only one you need. It's got like a seven-day wait period, and you're good to go. Uh, the selective herbicides are not for seedbed prep. They're designed to select, to select certain things and hurt them and not hurt the other ones. Uh, so you want to, uh, our ResMax and Slay, for instance, are selective herbicides. You can use the, the Slay is labeled for use in any clover and any alfalfa. Uh, you can use the Arrest Max on any of our perennials. Uh, but they will, the, the label will tell you what plants the herbicide won't hurt, and what plants it will. And that's what you want to do is get the right one for that particular forage stand you're trying to maintain. All right. Well, if you'd like to learn more about herbicides or anything else food plot related, visit whitetailinstitute.com. And now, back to our next question. Corey asks a question of me and you. Corey says, I own a 16-acre piece of timber that has some hills and valleys, and it sounds like this 16-acre piece of timber is part of a larger 250-acre woods in southern Illinois. He says he's only been hunting about six years or so. I'm still learning and doing lots of trial and error work. My ground is decent, but I've only seen one mature buck on the property and have shot a few does. Only one other person and myself bow hunt the entire 250-acre area, as far as I know. There are some shotgun hunters there during the firearm season. I was wanting to plant a small food plot of some sort on or near an old logging road to try to get more deer into my area. Uh, he mentioned he's got some good oak trees, some persimmons, and a decent bedding area, but I'm just not seeing the deer activity I think I should be. Any thoughts if a food plot would help my situation or any other kind of habitat improvement? So it sounds like he's got a 16-acre piece of timber as part of a larger 250-acre woods. He's not seeing a lot of mature bucks. Would a food plot or a food source or something like that help? I'll let you. I'll let you go in this direction. Okay. Yeah. I, I have done a little more habitat work, um, and so I think it when you're when you're looking at a property and how can you improve a property, how can you improve the habitat on a property? You want to look at a couple things, and the first thing is looking at okay, what does my property offer right now, and what does the surrounding area offer right now? So look at the big picture. So. On your property, think about, you know, what do deer need? Deer need food, water, cover, and, and safety from humans, pressure, air, places to get away from human hunting pressure. So if your property is lacking any of those things, that could be one of the reasons why you're not seeing more deer in your property. Or it might be that the property around you has much better options in regards to those four factors. So think about that. Find out where, try to find where the gap is. So... In this case, since you don't have a huge property, you've got only 16 acres to work with, you need to be pretty targeted with what type of improvement you try to add. So if you look around the surrounding area, let's just say that this 250 acres of timber have very poor food in them. Let's say it's just all tall, mature hardwoods, so very little sunlight's getting down to the ground, 
and maybe there's not a lot of crop fields around you. Now, you did say you're southern Illinois, so it's probably a lot of ag. Um, but let's just say in a hypothetical that there's not a ton of great food in that small area because of all this timber. In that case, then, yeah, it might make a lot of sense to put in a bunch of or some type of food plot that's very attractive and different than the food sources around you because that's that unique factor that you can provide in that area to pull in deer. On the other hand, maybe let's say that all that timber is relatively new timber. There's lots of cuts in the timber, and there's food plots in it from the neighbors, or there's just lots of underbrush and lots of food, and there's tons of ag fields all around you. Maybe food isn't the issue in your area. So let's say that you do this kind of audit, and you see that actually really good cover is the biggest lack or is the greatest factor that's lacking. In that case, then the smarter thing, I think, in many cases would be to improve the cover on your property and provide that unique thing on your place there. So try to find what's missing around you and provide that on your farm. And I think that is a good starting point for how to make a decision about what kinds of habitat improvements can make the biggest difference. On a place like 16 acres, you might not be able to do everything. So being smart about your one habitat improvement or two habitat improvements you can make is, I think, the way to go. Now, that said, it's it's hard to go wrong with some kind of food plot. So I would just think long and hard about, okay, where are the deer bedded? Where are they coming from? Trying to relegate as much of your property to deer as possible because you can very easily overhunt a 16-acre parcel. Um, so I would be careful to try to not overhunt it and be strategic about where you place that food plot so that as much of the property is not impacted when you hunt and that when you do hunt, you've got a high probability that deer will be moving into that area, checking out that food plot and giving you a shot. So that's kind of my my high level thought process when thinking through a question like that. It definitely a food plot definitely could be helpful, but do that audit first. Right. Any other thing else you'd add to that, Dan? You know, I'm getting ready to start planning my very first food plot this year and it's going to be probably a half acre um maybe somewhere around there if i had to guess and um it's on a small piece of property it's 15 acres and the thing about it is you got to know what you're going to plant because small food plots mean that and depending on what kind of deer density you have they could wipe it out if it's not the right food plot so and, and you know if if Food's not the problem, like Mark said. You got There's other things to do, like make your property a thick, nasty mess if that's an option for you, and create more bedding. So, yeah, yeah. Have you? Um, I can't remember. Have you decided? Oh, we did, we have talked about it, but I can't remember if we talked about it on air. Have you decided officially what you want to plant in that food plot yet, Dan? I know for sure. Um, there's going to be brassicas in it, mm-hmm. but I'm not a hundred percent sure what else I'm going to put in there. I might do a little mix. And I think I heard you mention and everybody else is saying some kind of oats Mm -hmm. with brassica. So they got something for the, you know, middle of the season that you're mid October. And then you get, they got something for, uh, um, late season too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is exactly my, what I really like to use in my area, and I, when people ask about what to plant for food plots, I, you know, I think they mentioned it. Grant and Bill mentioned it, and Lee too. I think in our hundredth episode, but I'll echo it again. There's no one size fits all food plot prescription. It's always going to be dependent on your area and your soil and all sorts of different circumstances. But in my circumstances, and it sounds like you've got there too, that type of combination of oats and brassicas really is is a dynamite combo for that full season activity. Because like you mentioned. The oats will have them in there in October and November, and then the brassicas will have them there, and then we'll have them in there from November through December or January. Um, one tip I'll give you, Dan, 
what I like to do when planning those two things is I do not mix them all together. I instead split the food plot in half. And the reason why I do that is because brassicas and most crops in general should not be planted in the same area over and over and over again. With brassicas, um, I, be I believe the literature says that you should not plant brassicas in the same section more than three years in a row. So what you want to do is you want to rotate those crops. So what I do is even on like a half acre food plot, I split that half acre down the middle, plant oats on the, on the left side, brassicas on the right side, and then every year flip-flop them. So I can still plant the same thing in that plot, it's just different sides over and over. Um, so that's one, one easy way to be able to rotate your crop but still keep that same great mix of, of forage in the same area. Great. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking through some of these other questions we have here. I got a question from Charles, um, and we kind of already spoke to it, but I'm going to, well, let me see here. Well, maybe we can speak to it just a little bit more. Charles says, my question for you involves using trail cameras to pattern a specific buck. Excuse me. And the frequency in which you check those cameras. I really feel like I could be utilizing my cameras a lot better in season, and I plan on using a tactic similar to what Bill Winky uses, but with a combination of hip boots, rain pants, and scent control to reduce my residual scent when I'm checking my cameras. Any input on location of cameras and check frequency would be appreciated. So we talked about this a little bit, but just in this specific instance, do you want to add anything more when it comes to how we are trying to keep pressure low with our cameras, where we're putting them, how we're checking them, our scent control related to that, or anything else related to that topic, Dan? I mean, all I do is wear rubber boots when I um, go to check my trail camera, and sometimes even... I I even don't do that. So my frequency um, on my property, my main hunting property, is about once a month um, in the summertime. During the season, it just depends on if I'm hunting that weekend or not. Or, you know, during the rut, obviously, you're checking your trail cameras a little bit more if your goal is to harvest a specific deer. But other than that, I mean, you have to know that your deer, are they spooked easily? Can you get away with, you know, going into your trail camera set and, and potentially busting one? Or, you know, are your deer high pressured for, you know, I got one piece of property where I can, I could probably check my trail cameras every day if I wanted to. And the deer are used to human activity. And then I got other piece of property where I, I kind of got to be careful. And luckily that property is a long ways for me. And, um, you know, once a month, isn't going to bother them. Yeah, that's a great point. It's very situation and region specific based on, you know, like you said, how your deer react to pressure. So in a place like Michigan, I'm, I'm super careful about it because there's so much hunting pressure versus when I hunt in Iowa or something where there's slightly less pressure, maybe in that certain area I'm hunting, I can be a little bit more aggressive. Um, but you know, I'll echo a couple things that you mentioned, Dan, and some stuff I mentioned earlier. I do try to take scent control into account every time I'm checking cameras. Um, so if I'm not already going in to hunt, which like I said earlier, most of the time that I'm checking cameras during the season, it's going to be in a situation where I'm already passing by because I'm heading into hunt. So in that case, I'm already, you know, fully scent free as best as possible in my hunting gear, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if it's a situation where I'm not, and I'm going in just to check a camera, I'm wearing rubber boots. I'm sprayed. I've sprayed those down at least, and I'm wearing gloves that have been sprayed down. So if I touch anything with my boots or hands, that's going to not leave any, you know, super extra scent. Um, 
I'm definitely considering wind when I'm going in to check cameras, so I'm not going to go check a camera and have my wind blow right into a bedding area. Um, I'm also thinking about the time of the day, so I'm not going to go check trail cameras early in the morning or late in the evening when a lot of deer are probably on their feet moving. I'm either going to be um, checking those cameras in the middle of the day when those deer are bedded, assuming I'm in a place I'm checking cameras where you know it's not near a bedding area, or in some cases I will drive out to... Um, field edge stands or sorry field edge cameras in the middle of the night in my truck or ATV if I know that it's a food source or a field that deer aren't feeding at that time of year so <clears throat> for example uh you know maybe there's just like a wide open CRP field or something like that that deer just typically aren't going to be in in the evening I know they're out in the food sources well in that case if I'm going to be checking them in the middle of the night I'll go out there in my vehicle I know there's not going to be deer out there or very you know, it's not very likely and I can check those cameras um and I guess on that note, like I said earlier, as much as possible, I try to access those by vehicle of some way. I'm going to be utilizing a bike more this year. I'm going to try to go um, by bike because I think that's quieter, leaves less scent, and then maybe has a slightly less of a negative uh, impact on deer too. So that's something I'm going to be adding to my strategy this year as well. So that's kind of kind of my trail camera philosophy. I, I always err on caution with them. I think that that can be beneficial, but like we like we've been talking about, there's definitely a lot of risks associated with them too. If you if you go too hard at it, so um, let's see here, Dan. I could um, do this all day. I'm having fun. This is fun. I like it. It's kind of it's laid back. I, we can just kind of tackle different topics, and I I kind of want to do this more often. So hopefully, people enjoy listening to it. Though. <laughs> I guess that could be the one kink in our plan. Um. All right, Steve has got a question. He says, I work for a company that installs and manages native prairie ecosystems across Minnesota and North Dakota. Um, there's a customer in particular located in Northern Dakota who owns a large piece of ground, and he's 99.99% sure that no one has permission to hunt it due to the fact the landowner is very wildlife friendly. With that being said, his question for us is, have you ever dealt with landowners like this? Through our years of experience, have you found any ways that feel that I feel work better while asking for permission to access a piece of land to hunt? So I think the question here, Dan, is number one, advice for asking for permission, and then number two, what to do in a situation where the landowner seems very wildlife friendly. So maybe they're not pro-hunting, maybe not necessarily against it, but they very much like their animals. So I'm going to give you almost the – I have an example for this question that is pretty – spot on, uh, similar to the question that you asked. So I saw that all these deer were piling out of this one particular piece of property. And I asked, you know, a, a neighboring landowner, Hey, does this lady let anybody hunt on her property? And they're like, uh, no, she doesn't. Well, I went and, and talked to her, come to find out. And this is not a joke. She felt that the white-tailed doe was her animal spirit and that <laughs> she did not want to have any animals harmed on her property. And it wasn't that she was against hunting. She was just against that her animal spirit, her doe, you know, does would uh, be harmed by hunters. And I said, what about bucks? And she's like, well, you know, I really don't know. And I said, okay. So I, this is how I started. I asked her for permission to shed hunt it and I found a shed off of her property and I gave her the shed 
and I said, you know, this I kind of bullshitted with her a little bit. And I was like, I feel that my Indian spirit is no, a you white. Didn't. No, this is not a joke. <laughs> I feel that my Indian spirit or my uh, my my animal spirit is a white-tailed oh, buck. Oh gosh! And, and in a way, I kind of do. It's kind of cool, you know. It's like if you could be any animal, what would you be? Hell, I'd want to be a giant white-tail, right? You you would be. I think so. I'd be a wolf, and I would eat you. Yeah, right. My antlers would be so big, I'd just go and just I'd puncture your your lungs, and you can't. Oh no, money. no! The power of the pack. You would try to puncture my lungs, and my buddy would get you from behind. That's, that's oh, <laughs> so that is assuming Corey Fall is also a wolf. <laughs> right. Maybe he stab, you he stabbed me in the back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Spirit animals. <laughs> back back to the story. I give her the shed antler and I, you know, I was like, here you go. You know, this is, I found this off your property. It has a lot of meaning. You know, you should. And she's like, that is awesome. And she let me hunt it. I only got to hunt it one year before she sold it, but I was the only hunter to hunt that property. And that particular year was the year I saw giants come in and out of that property. And uh, so it's, you know, maybe it's not necessarily that they're against hunting, but they may have had some bad experiences in the past. So you should definitely approach it and you kind of have to be a salesman, right? You kind of have to tell them what they want to hear. Um, because I only hunt with a bow, I, you know, I'm not going to be in there making a lot of noise. I'm stealth. I'm a ninja. You know, you're, you're, I don't know, you're, you're making a low impact. If they're still hardcore, no. Uh, like I have other, you know, places where they're not necessarily nature lovers, but they just don't want anybody on their property. I knocked on every door of every property that bordered that piece of property and would gain access to that property of the deer coming and going off of it. So there's definitely options. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd agree with a lot you said there. I think the most important thing is that you need to, um, you need to try to develop a relationship and put the best foot forward as to, how and who you are as a hunter, how you hunt and who you are as a hunter, and hopefully position that in such a way and prove that it's true that you are, you know, not maybe whatever they have, if they have some type of negative stereotype about hunters, or at least in such a way that they will know that you will respect the wildlife and appreciate the wildlife just as they do. Um, You just go about, you know, interacting with it in a different way. Um, so I think it's, I think it starts with trying to, you know, start that conversation and seeing where it goes. And if you can build some kind of relationship there, um, you know, that's, that's a terrific thing. Like in your case, Dan, you got shed hunting permission. I think that's a great way to try to start some type of relationship and some kind of conversation. And then just be, you know, just be very cognizant of the fact that they might be more sensitive to how we talk about some of these things or how we interact with them. And I think in many cases, if this is someone who's not straight up anti-hunting, but just, you know, very much pro wildlife maybe you'll be having an opportunity to start having a discussion about why you hunt and and you know how you appreciate wildlife and all these things and show the fact that you've got a similar value system to them as well um and in those cases you might be able to you know find an opportunity to actually get in there if you, if you can if you can highlight these things in a positive manner so i would say that that's kind of how i'd approach it i like your ideas i've never tried the spirit animal thing but i'm gonna keep that in my back pocket <laughs> just in case Another, I mean, another thing that you, you kind of got to look at is I have two particular pieces of property where I shouldn't say I don't have them yet, but excuse me one second. 
my uh, fly spirit flew down my throat. Oh, I hate it when they do that. <coughs> I'm sorry, Mark. <coughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, man, tickle. You can edit this out if you want. No, I, li- I love it. You love it? <laughs> yeah, you're keeping it. Um, I've, I have one property that this summer – will be the eighth year in a row that I asked permission to hunt their property and they have told me no seven years in a row. <laughs> and the hunting, I, I know there's giant deer in there. Uh, bedding is awesome based off of maps and uh, the, the one time they did let me shed hunt the property, I will ask again this year and more than likely they're going to tell me no. But if I ask this year and they say yes, watch out. It'll all be worth it's, it. Yeah, it'll all be worth it. And I got another property where it's been four years in a row that they've told me no. And it's almost to the point where, oh, you again? You know, like <laughs> in a good way. It's yeah. like – and then we, we sit and we talk for a while, talk about their farming and cattle and, and crops and, and just about everything because he's a shotgun hunter and he only shotgun hunts. And uh, so he, he hunts maybe three days a year and uh, doesn't do anything else on the property. Another awesome piece that – you know, just sometimes these things take time and once you're in, you're in and they'll let you do whatever you want. Yeah, I think that's whether it be a situation like that or some other way of going about it, just I think relationships are the most important thing. Helping right. someone build trust in you. So if that's every every year you stop in, say hi and ask or whatever it is, by finding ways to help people build trust in you and get to know you you significantly increase your chances that they might be willing to let you hunt. And so anything you can do along those lines is helpful. And I think, Dan, I think with that, we're going to wrap it up. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, Let me do. ask you a qu- question. Yeah. Are you super jacked pumped for this upcoming deer season? Oh, man, I am. I am, I am super jacked pumped, and I'm struggling. Like, I've got, like summer slash fall itis like i'm just sick of the spring i'm sick of the office i just need to like get outside and do stuff i'm ready to hunt i'm ready to fish i'm ready to just adventure i just want to like load up in my truck and take off and like not come back to the desk for months <laughs> i already got i already got velvet trail camera pictures so nice. i'm su- i'm super jacked pumped there's that's awesome. that. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'll be uh, putting up cameras in Ohio this weekend, so that'll get me excited. And every time I go down there, I just get all all tingly and worked up because that's just a special <laughs> place. So <laughs> that'll be fun. And uh, you know, one bummer of a thing is that you know I used to have every year in May DVDs would come out from like Realtree and Drury Outdoors and stuff, and that was like a little way to get that deer fix in May when hunting season's still so far away. Right. Like me and a bunch of buddies would get pizza and watch the movies and stuff a couple nights, and that was yeah, just kind of fun. But Drury's aren't producing DVDs anymore, and I don't know about Realtree and any of these other guys. DVDs are kind of going the way of the past, so I don't know if we're gonna have those. We we call them horn porn. <laughs> I don't know if we're gonna have horn porn nights anymore. Horn porn. Yeah, so uh, we'll have to find some other way to to get our kicks, I suppose. But <laughs> real porn. No, let's 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 avoid that. Let's avoid that on this podcast. Is a PG PG show? No, it's not. Ah, PG thirteen, I suppose. Okay, I'll agree to that. I'll agree to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're family friendly for the most part. Get your kids out hunting, right? And don't let them listen to Dan too often. 
Just small doses. Small doses. Any final thoughts, Dan, before we wrap this up? Other than that. No, man. I hope everybody has a great weekend. That's what I want to say. All right. I'm right there with you. And with that, we will wrap this show up. But just a couple quick reminders before we shut it down. First, be sure to check out the 100% Wild podcast that we've just recently launched with the Drury Outdoors. We've got two episodes out already and another one to come soon. So be sure to subscribe to that ASAP. And if you happen to be doing that over on iTunes, please take a second to give us a rating or review for this podcast as well. It's a huge help. Thank you. And speaking of thanks, we also need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us. I appreciate your time and I hope we got to answer a few of your questions today. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.